you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Saw king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty-two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you here, and uh, those uh, online as well. Can't see you, but it's great to be worshipping together this morning with you. Um, Non-rhetorical question, does anyone know the very first scripture that was ever preached on in the state of Victoria, as far as we know? Does anyone know the first text? No? I, um, I, I do know it because it was a very distant relative of mine who actually preached it, apparently, so it said. Um, but the text, text is 1 Corinthians 2.2. And the text was, I resolved to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as I think back upon eight years um, of our church gathering together on Sundays, and I hear some of those stories that you guys shared, that's, that's what it is. We, we, we need to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And if we know anything else beside of that, then it's, it's, it's nothing. What we need, and that is the central portion of who we are, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I'd love that as we look at a text which seem a, seems a long way from Jesus Christ and Him crucified on the external side, I want you to pray with me that as we open the Bible again now and we, we look at that together, that we would see Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So let's pray. Father, um, we come before Your Word and we thank You that we have this opportunity here physically or at home used through use of technology to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And we pray now that You would uh, move in our midst, that You would stir our hearts, that You would speak clearly to us through Your Word and and through my words, and may my words be Your words. And we pray these things in the name of this crucified, resurrected Saviour. Amen. 
Well, I wanted to start this morning by talking about pirates. Um, you know, arr, it's kind of pirates. Um, and I want to speak to you about the most famous, the most successful, the most debonair of all pirates. And his name was Bartholomew Roberts. Uh, Bartholomew Roberts in 1719 was the second mate of a ship. He was an honest sailor doing an honest living when his ship was captured by the famous pirate at that time, can we get his name right, Howell Davis. Howell Davis captured Roberts and he urged him to become a pirate as well. And Roberts refused steadfastly for a little while. But Howell Davis was a persuasive pirate captain, and in the end, he prevailed, and Roberts became a pirate, so began the greatest of all pirates in the golden age of piracy. He captured more than 400 ships. He made over $50 million of personal fortune. But what really captures me about Roberts is that he's not the kind of pirate you would expect, Right? He's very different. Here's a couple of true stories about him. He preferred tea to rum. He preferred, uh, he, he banned all gambling on his ship. He instituted an 8 p.m. bedtime. And, uh, and when he actually gave his, his pirate crew a rest on the Sabbath, he had some good morals. And he insisted that every new member of his crew swear an oath on the Bible. So this is the dread pirate Roberts, for those of you of Princess Bride um, fame. And why would I start with him? Because I cannot get out of my mind that there's a little bit of a similarity with Ahab, right? We heard of Ahab and we heard his description in the reading, the worst, the most evil king up until this point that Israel ever had. That's, that's how he ends up, evil, bad, the worst of the worst, but he didn't get there overnight. And Ahab, a little bit like the dread pirate Roberts, they weren't as bad on the surface as they looked, but they became very bad. And so I want to actually, this morning, journey with you as we look at that, as, at that development. I want you to see some things, I think some parallels between those two. But now let's get to Ahab because we just heard about him. Ahab begin, begins his reign in 918 BC, so about 60 years after the death of Solomon, the king we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Ahab's reign was very significant. It gets more time in the books of First and Second Kings than any other besides King Solomon himself. But there's one thing you must know about Ahab, which is absolutely important. Does anyone know what it was? The one thing that you would, if you're going to give Ahab's CV or you're going to talk about Ahab, you would have to say. Yes, you need to talk about his wife. You cannot know Ahab without knowing his wife. We meet her in chapter 16, verse 31. Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Uh, Jezebel is the princess of a neighboring kingdom of Sidon. And he, he, her marriage with Ahab makes great political and economic sense. It's, it's actually a really good political move. Um, uh, Jezebel's dad is Ethbal. He's a, he's the, he's a a king, and, and for them, the religion of Sidon is Baal. And Jezebel, in many ways, is like the Disney dream princess, the modern Disney dream princess, right? She's intelligent, she's smart, she's strong, and it doesn't say it, but I reckon she was pretty good looking too. And she comes as a princess, and she's not a wallflower when she marries Ahab, she shows up in the kingdom of Israel, and she comes with one overriding agenda, 
and it's not a good agenda. We know uh, that from the history of the story of God, that God's people, Israel, are meant to be a light to the world. They're a nation under God. They're a nation of kings and priests, as as, uh, God has promised they will be to Moses. There's a beautiful sense of God dwelling in the midst of his people. They're different from every other nation on earth. They worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who had taken them out of Egypt, who who had stirred them up and made them a nation under David and Solomon. That's who their God is. Jezebel comes and she almost single-handedly seeks to undo all of that. And I, I confess to the other pastors as we we're talking about it this past couple of weeks, I got a lot of respect for her. This woman is single-mindedly determined and, and she achieves something on an incredible scale. She almost single-handedly changes the religion of a nation. This is a woman to be reckoned with. She's powerful. And she's influential, and she is smart, and she is also unutterably evil. In fact, there's no doubt that she is the most evil woman in the entire Bible, bar none. And Ahab, you married her. Well, if Roberts was corrupted by the evil pirate Howell Davis, who turned him to become a pirate, well, there's no doubt that Ahab was corrupted by his wife, Jezebel. Now, before you go, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's just too easy. That's just a bloke just um, blaming his wife for all of the problems that are actually in his heart. And you'd be fair to say that. But the Bible is very clear that that Ahab, in many respects, he's happy to go along with the agenda. But the Bible's very clear that it's not Ahab who's driving it. Jezebel is driving it. Um, 1 Kings 21, 25 sums up how it worked like this. Jezebel incited Ahab to evil. Jezebel incited Ahab. And as you go through, and we're covering like five chapters here, so it's very difficult for me to go through all the details. I hope you're reading it at home or you are reading it. But when you see it, you see that Jezebel comes up with the idea to kill God's prophets. Jezebel comes up with the idea to crush God's people. Jezebel comes up with the idea of state-sponsored Baal worship from the public purse, which is what happened. Ahab goes along with it, but Jezebel is the driving force. If you like, and we saw that that, um, on the screen at the start, the white snake, Little Miss Sunshine apparently she's called, a very nice snake, but we saw that white snake circling around the throne. That snake is Jezebel and Ahab. But Jezebel is driving the evil in the kingdom. And Ahab, as a king, is responsible. He should have resisted. But why didn't he? Well, I think because we get a real insight into who uh, uh, King Ahab is because we see that he's just like the people he governs. Or the people he governs have become like him, one or the other. And we see that on Mount Carmel in chapter 18, verse 21. Now, you guys uh, will know Mount Carmel is one of the great moments of the Old Testament. So uh, the prophet Elijah says, all right, gather together all of your 450 prophets of Baal. I'm the only one of Yahweh left. Now, we're going to gather together on Mount Carmel. Anyone ever been to Mount Carmel? A couple of you have. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you can see the monument to this day. Um, and you, you come to the top of Mount Carmel. The whole people are gathered there. All Israel's gathered. The Baal's there. And then Elijah goes, all right, we're going to have a confrontation. And you, Baal guys, you got 450 of you, get to your work. Baal's going to speak 
to this. Now, here's your sacrifice. The God that sends fire, he's the real God. Get to work. And we see in this confrontation, Elijah says to them before it starts, he says this to the people. How long will you go limping between two opinions? Elijah says, he's looking at the people, how long are you going to keep limping? If Baal is God, well, go and worship him. If Yahweh is God, then worship him. But stop limping one way and then the other. This is what Elijah says to the people of Israel, and he could have just have said it as well to King Ahab, because that's what Ahab does. He limps, he blows according to who he's with and what's happening. When he's with Jezebel, he's a different person to when he's with Elijah. And those of you who know what happened on Mount Carmel is in that moment, God sends down the fire. Uh, with, uh, the Baal prophets of Baal got nowhere. God sends down the fire, consumes the sacrifice. King Ahab sees it and he permits Elijah to kill all 450 prophets of Baal on the spot. Ahab is a different man when he's with Elijah than he is when he is with Jezebel. And God, in the way that he treats Ahab, is totally unreasonable. He is unreasonable in the way he treats Ahab. Uh, you might, an example might be a good wife married to a husband whose eyes are beginning to wander towards a woman who will destroy him. She had every justification to be angry and to be upset and to punish him, but instead she just continues to reach out arms of love, pleading with him. God is like this. He's unreasonable with Ahab. Ahab deserves everything he should get from God. He is in bed, literally, with Jezebel, while she destroys the, the worship of the true God in Israel. This is not just a political machination. This is a spiritual catastrophe. And Ahab is at the seat of power that's allowing it to happen. God's prophets are being murdered. God's faithful remnant is oppressed. God's religion, his temple, is decrepit, and in its place is a false pagan god called Baal. This is a disaster. Ahab is responsible of it. God should destroy him, shouldn't he? He deserves it. But God's unreasonable. He's unreasonable. He keeps reaching out to Ahab time and time again. And, and look what happens. I mentioned the prophet, the, the confrontation at Mount Carmel. Listen to, so Ahab just saw, right, picture it was you, he just saw fire from heaven consume a sacrifice that he'd covered in water, so, so it was, you know, was going to be no mistake, he just saw it with his own eyes. I mean, what a privilege. But God doesn't stop there. Look at what happens next. This is a sweet period. God has called a three-year drought on Ahab's kingdom for its rebellion. And then Elijah says, oh, I'm going to pray that God would end the drought now. And this is what happens. 18 verse 45. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And listen to this bit. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's 25 Ks. Old Ahab, probably Michael's age, you know, gets his, uh, hitches up his robe, and off he goes with the Spirit of the Lord, and, and Ahab's riding his chariot, and he can't keep up. That's a miracle. As you get an older man, you begin to realize how miraculous that actually is. It's a miracle. Ahab sees it all the way. 
He sees fire from heaven uh, consume the sacrifice, the prophets of Baal, nothing. He he then sees a drought, a three-year drought broken because a man prayed, and then he sees the man who prayed running before the chariot for 25 Ks. It's miracles. It's God's incredible power. He's giving Ahab everything he needs, isn't he? And uh, I like to picture uh, Ahab... um, as he says goodbye to Elijah at the town gate, I, I picture him sort of humming a worship song as he heads back to the... Pa- this has been an incredible spiritual day. And maybe he's excited as he comes in to tell Jezebel what's gone on. We don't know. But the Bible tells us <laughs> what happens in chapter 19, verse 1. And I can imagine Jezebel with her hands on her hips. He did what? You did what? 450 of my prophets you killed? What? Yeah, you can imagine. It, it ends there. At that very moment, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah and says, if you're alive by tomorrow, if you're drawing breath, then so help me God, help me Baal. And what does Ahab do when his wife seeks to kill the prophet? He's just seen God use powerfully three times in 12 hours. He limps once again away from God. It's so frustrating. God is, that's surely enough. That's surely enough, God. Let's get rid of this guy. He's defying your name. He's killing your prophets. He's being led by his wife in the destruction of true religion. It's time that he gets what he deserves. But God is unreasonable because in the next three chapters, he continues again and again and again to hold out his arms to plead with Ahab to come back. You see it in in chapter 20. You know, Ahab is in the Führer bunker and the Russian artillery is falling outside. He's surrounded. It's a military disaster. There's no way out. He doesn't ask for help, but God sends it. He sends another prophet, shows up, walks into Ahab and says, thus says the Lord, 2013, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I'll give it into your hand this day and you shall know that I am the Lord. And he does. He delivers this scum from death. And then you know what? If you read the rest of chapter 20, he does it again the next year too. Another miraculous deliverance from military disaster two years in a row. It's unreasonable. So many chances God should have said, enough is enough. Ahab, you're done. And Jezebel, you're what? But he doesn't. Well, What saddens me about the pirate, Bartholomew Roberts, is that he was a good bloke in many ways. And he had every chance of being pardoned. That's kind of how it worked. The the British crown couldn't keep up with the pirates anyway, so you pardoned them and you made them respectable. I did that often, did it before Roberts and after Roberts. Roberts had every chance to be pardoned. But a few years into his piracy career, he captured the French governor, a very important state official of Martinique. Would have been a great ransom, but Roberts wasn't interested in money anymore. And maybe for a lark, he strung up the French governor from the yardarm while he laughed until he died. He went past the point of no return. Ahab, the point of no return happens in chapter 21, and it's all to do with a taste for vegetables. And if you read that, I'm not joking, that's, that's what it was. He wanted a new veggie garden. Chapter 21 tells us what happened. 
And uh, he went to the man who owned it, a guy called Naboth, and he offered him a fair price. But Naboth was a, a righteous man. He was a follower of the true God. He was one of the remnant who were left. And, and he, he, Naboth says, no, I, I'm not going to give you my vineyard. This is inheritance from God to my family. You know, look, you, know you go and get your veggie patch somewhere else. And Ahab, he doesn't force the issue. He probably could have, but he, he goes home and sulks. And he lies on his bed and he doesn't eat and he's all sulky. And Jezebel comes in and Jezebel comes and, and she says in verse 7, basically you can sum it up, my daddy Ethbal would never have behaved like this. That's basically what she says. But she says, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Jezebel goes, this is pathetic, Ahab. You're, you're the king. You want the vineyard? Take it. You're above the law. Do what you want. But you won't. And so Je Jezebel, she, she rolls into action and she's a woman of action. She goes, I think imagine her, she, she, she's got you know, Ahab's password to his Facebook. So she hops on Facebook and she messages all of the elders of the town, of, of Naboth's little town, and she says, all right, this is how it works. Um, you hold the big feast together, Daniel's donuts, and in the middle of it, when, when, you know, when Naboth is having a good time and he's enjoying his donuts, and then what you do is you just get a couple of false accusations, you know, in the context, you've breached COVID restrictions or something, and then a couple of those, and then take him outside and stone him to death. And it's exactly what happens. It goes off without a hitch. And Naboth, and we find out his sons as well, are bloody messes lying in their, in their vineyard, murdered by corrupt power. Looks like she's got away with it. But even as Ahab is going down and Jezebel says, well, I've sorted it out for you. Go and take possession of your vineyard. 21 verse 19 and the word of God comes to Elijah, and he says, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Now Ahab could have said, It wasn't me, I didn't do it, she did it. True. But God has had enough. Says Ahab, you've crossed the point of no return. And you know what? If you're anything like me, you go, hallelujah. How long did it take you to get to this point, God? This guy's scum. His wife is scum. Get rid of them once and for all. They don't deserve to live. They don't deserve your unreasonable grace, so get rid of them. And at last, we think it's what's going to happen. And then comes 21, verse 27. Listen to this. And when Ahab heard these words... He tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And we think, oh no God, please don't fall for this. This is Ahab, this is Jezebel. He's not really repentant. He's feeling sad that his dogs are going to eat him, but that's about it. He's not really repenting. Don't fall for it. But you know what happens? This unreasonable God, he falls for it. Listen to what happens. 21, 28, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tispite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? 
God says to Elijah, have you, have you, have you had a look at Ahab? He's humbled himself. And he, oh no, don't tell me God's going to show more mercy. God shows more mercy. He says to Ahab, all right, there's a stay of execution. You're not going to see these things. It's not cancelled, it's just delayed. But the point is, if Ahab had genuinely repented, you know God, you know, God, God's going to forgive him. He's going to let him get away with the whole thing. You, you, can, you can feel this in God. How unreasonable can you get? Like, there's got to be an end point. It's got to, enough has got to be enough. But God keeps reaching out in grace to Ahab, time after time after time after time. But Ahab doesn't respond. He limps once again back to Baal. And we know that because of chapter 22. Uh, Bartholomew Roberts, the pirate, met his end with courage and style. His ship was cornered by a, a British battleship sent out to hunt him down. And when he knew there was no way out, he got into his best pirate outfit, uh, best robes, gold and jewellery, stood on the deck and went to face that battleship head to head until the grape shot got him in the throat. He went out in style. For Ahab at Ramoth Gilead is where it ends. It's a, it's a town that's being fought over consistently through the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And at that, at that town, um, <laughs> Ahab gets together his prophets and he wants to know what's going to happen and all the prophets say to him, go into battle, you're going to triumphant and then they get a prophet called Micaiah and he goes, yeah, go into battle, you're going to be triumphant and he says, tell me the truth, what does God really say? And he says, you go to, the, you go to Ramoth Gilead, you're going to die. God actually, incredibly in his unreasonableness, says to Ahab one last time, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you if you do this, right? And the point is, don't do it, Ahab. Don't do it. Even now, don't do this and you will not die. But Ahab goes, I, I'm done listening to the word of God now. And so he, but I will take it into some account. So he dresses himself up, camouflages himself as an ordinary soldier. He goes into the battle. The battle is joined and he thinks he's hidden in the crowd, but no one's hidden from God. And we're told that an archer on the opposition draws a bow at random and it happens to hit him through the chink in his armor. And as that arrow pierces his side and the lifeblood drips onto the chariot floor, Ahab has got some guts because he says to his commanders, prop me up in the chariot so I can encourage the troops. And he does all afternoon until he dies. And so ends Ahab. Jezebel goes on. We're going to hear what happens to her next week. But Ahab is done. Now, what are we to make of all this? I said, you know, we want to know Christ and Him crucified. What do we make of what we just heard? You probably know what I think is the major point from this passage, and I'll come to it in a moment. Before I do, there is something that we cannot miss here, and that is this, be careful who you let influence you. Be careful. That's, it's not the main point of the text, but it, it's a clear one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. But the Bible says, you are who you hang out with. If you hang out with the wrong people, you will become the wrong people. Be careful who you let influence you. And the obvious um, <laughs> application from what we've seen with, with Ahab is, be careful who you marry. 
Because the person that you marry will influence you more than anybody else, for good or for ill. And when we look at Ahab, we see that he married the wrong woman, and he did so deliberately in disobedience to God's command. In the Old Testament, it's very clear. God says, um, you must marry another believer, and if you do not, then you'll be corrupted by them. If you marry the, the nations around you, you'll be corrupted. It's even clearer in the New Testament. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Ahab as God's king and Jezebel as a pagan princess should have had nothing to do with one another, let alone becoming one flesh. And we, we think of the application for us, it's, it's a difficult one because the reality is, is that those who are not Christian, especially when we are, you know, we are single, they're, they're just as attractive as anybody else, maybe more so. They're such nice people. Surely it's not going to harm our faith to become close to one of those people in a romantic sense or to marry them. Surely it's okay. Surely God understands. Surely I'll be able to lead them to know Jesus at missionary dating. This is the best way of evangelizing someone. But the Bible is absolutely clear that to do that is to compromise your identity. It is to do what Ahab did, to make yourself under the influence of someone who is not a Christian, someone who operates out of the flesh. They must operate out of the flesh because they're not of the Spirit because they haven't got the Holy Spirit in the presence of Jesus. They can be the most wonderful, loving person, but they do not know Jesus. And, and the experience that I've seen as a pastor now for these last decades has been it always, nearly, nearly always, ends badly. And it ends often in a way that doesn't seem bad on the surface, and that is that the couple become married, and he or she, whoever is the Christian, continues their faith for some time, but, and they actually have a most wonderful relationship. It's a great marriage, but that faith grows weaker and weaker and weaker. The influence grows stronger and stronger and stronger, and then eventually, and I've had a number of friends who whom this has happened, in the end, they might still stay, they are a Christian, but in reality, it's just an empty profession of faith. There's no life and no power. And it happens all too often. Or the person who is a Christian continues to be married to the person who was a non-believer and has a spiritual life of misery. I have sat with so many men and women as they have sobbed and said, do you know what it's like living with someone who doesn't know Christ? You know what it's like every argument about what we're going to do with the kids? About, and I see his or her influence exerted on them, leading them away from the only salvation there is in Christ Jesus. Do you know how much that, that hurts? The Bible is very clear. Be careful who you let influence you because you will be influenced. You will be influenced for good or for ill. And don't just take it because the person you're interested in says, oh yes, I'm a Christian, well, could you say the Apostles' Creed? Oh, yeah, not off by heart. Don't be persuaded. Anyone can do that. Anyone can put on camouflage for a little bit. Ask the questions, does this person fuel my love for Jesus Christ? 
Ask yourself the question, is this person living and active in their own faith? And if the answer to those two questions is no, no matter what they say they are, you need to put on the brakes. Because if you don't, the car will crash and you will live with the implications. And so will those that you love. Now, this sounds uncompromising. It sounds intolerant. It sounds, in today's climate, evil. This is what the Bible teaches in New Testament and Old. You cannot escape it. And Ahab is a worked out example of what happens. That's the first thing. But I said this is not the major point, and I don't think it is. The major point is this. God is so unreasonable in His grace. God is so unreasonable. Five separate occasions, three different prophets, five extraordinary miracles shown to this scum Ahab. God keeps reaching out to him beyond the point of reason. This is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is who God is. He's unreasonable in the way that he treats those who are far from him. He's unreasonable in the way he treats sinners. And when the real, when the real king comes, as he will, when the real king, the Lord Jesus, comes, what do, what do we expect him to treat those who are like that? Jesus says, I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. I haven't come for the really good people who think they've got together. I've come for the ones who are far away. I've come for the ones who have turned their backs on me. And he tells this amazing story about what God is like. And you know it. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus says, you know the unreasonable father whose son just squandered, spent his inheritance, slapped him in the face metaphorically, went off to live in a pagan land, spent everything, deserved nothing, and yet what is the dad doing? The dad's there watching for him. And when the son comes back in his filth and his mud with nothing to give him, the, the dad opens his arms and he runs towards him and he hugs him, and Jesus says, yeah, that's what God's like, unreasonable, totally unreasonable. But that's what God is like. His arms are wide open. And for those of us who are exasperated, as you can probably sense I do when I read Kings, at, at what I see God's behavior towards this scum, for those of you who are exasperated with that, ask yourself the question, how did God treat you? And when I asked myself the question this week, I went like, oh, you got me. I mean, how, how many times did he put up with me running back to my sin like a dog to its vomit? How often did he put up with me with my, my pathetic little, oh, I'll follow you, God, in the service and then promptly going away and being like a chameleon and being like exactly who I was with? How often did he put up with my broken promises? How often did he pour the best of things upon me and get only ungratefulness in return? And it's not just me. How often did he do that for you? His unreasonable grace is the reason that you're gathered here today and that you have a life now and for all eternity. It's unreasonable. You don't deserve it. You're not a good person. You're not someone who, who somehow God goes, oh yes, I can't wait to have you into heaven because you're so good. He accepts you into heaven because he's unreasonable. And he loves you so much that he extends his grace to you time and again when you throw it back in his face. He's unreasonable. And when we look at Ahab, we look at ourselves, and instead of going, what a scum Ahab is, we go, what a great God you are. Why are you so unreasonable to me? Why are you so unreasonable in your love and grace? We look at Ahab, and it should make our spirits sing, shouldn't it? 
If we're a Christian here today and you're watching online, if you're a Christian, it should make your spirit sing and go, thank you, God. The vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus of pardon receives. But if you're not a Christian, it's even better news, isn't it? And I, I know for some of us, we think, oh yeah, it, it, God could never, never, ever have me back knowing what I've done. Maybe I'm not so much like Ahab just going along with the crowd. I've been more like Jezebel. I've been, I've been actively involved in evil. I've led others into evil. God, God's done with me. He, he's finished with me. And look, all these good people sitting here, you know, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, God maybe loves them and he can accept them, but not me. I'm too far away. If I went into a church, many guys in the army used to say, if I go into a church, the place would fall down. That's what I'm like. The story of Ahab says, that's not what God's like. God is unreasonable. And the scripture is absolutely clear. There is nothing that you've said or done or not said or not done that can keep you from God. No matter how distant you feel this morning, no matter how far away you feel, no matter how black and filthy you feel on the inside, in Jesus Christ who came and said, he didn't just tell us what God is like, Jesus Christ showed us what God is like. Jesus went to the cross in the most unreasonable act you can imagine. In Romans it says, God didn't die for us when we were good people. He says, when we were still sinners, when we were God's enemies, when we were like Ahab, that was when Jesus came and he went to the cross and he stretched out his arms and he died. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that is the testament to you that you are not too far away. That there is no one who is outside the unreasonable grace of God. It's good news. Uh, someone gave me an example of it this past week, and I'll share it with you. There's a, a Kevin Dyag GC leaders in our church, and in their GC, they've got a couple from mainland China. And this is what happened, uh, I think it was last week before last. Their cousin of uh, this, this Chinese group in their GC, their cousin was in ICU, I'm just going to read it and make sure I get it right, in Geelong Hospital with COVID. Uh, it was very bad and they thought she was actually dying. This uh, woman's English is not good and she was frightened. She was struggling to breathe and she couldn't communicate with anybody. Uh, this woman who was sick with COVID and her husband have been exposed to the gospel of Jesus for a long time. They've never responded, but they've been exposed. And in this moment of desperation, the husband uh, at home got on his knees and he cried out to God. He said, help. Help, help her. Help me. This is what happened. Out of the blue, uh, a Chinese nurse who had just trans, uh, transferred from Melbourne Hospital, one of the Melbourne hospitals to Geelong Hospital, walked into the ICU room. He looked at the photo beside the woman's bed. It was up on oxygen. And she asked one, she says, who's this? And the nurses gave them the, the names of the couple, and she said, I know that man. He's my friend from school. I'll look after them from here on. And she began to speak to this woman in Chinese as she was hooked up on oxygen. 
When the husband heard the news, he was totally flabbergasted that God would have answered his prayer in that way. When the couple in the GC heard the news, they were like, this is the God, this is what he does. He's, he's reached out to this cousin of ours who, who's refused to know Jesus and he's shown this unreasonable grace again. They're now talking about taking them to GC with them as soon as she's recovered. That's just so Godish, isn't it? If you're a long way from God this morning or wherever you're listening, if you're a long way from God, he's not a long way from you and he wants you to come close. But thirdly and finally, God's grace is unreasonable, but it's not inexhaustible. Naboth is dead in the vineyard with his sons beside him. God will deal with injustice. We'll actually see that next week. He will repay the persecutors of his people. Naboth is dead. God's not. God is not dead. He will judge sin. His unreasonable grace poured out on Ahab is not inexhaustible. There'll come a time when it does end. There's some of us who are are listening right now, perhaps, who are presuming on God's unreasonable. A little bit like Ahab, the prophet appears and Ahab sort of you know, dips or bends a little bit back towards God and then he limps back towards Baal and, and we think, no, God's just like that. He's always going to be forgiving. He's always going to extend his grace. He's always going to be waiting there for me the moment that I come back to him and maybe I'll just wait until near the end of my life and I can do it. Maybe perhaps you, you're, you're someone who's grown up in a Christian home and you've heard it over and over and over and you think, yeah, I've got enough religion, I'm okay. If it comes to the crunch, I will have, you know, God will accept me because he appeared to me once, I remember. I really experienced him, I was reading the Bible and this thing happened and maybe I had a baptism of the Holy Spirit in the moment and think God did amazing, he'll be okay with me. I can presume on his unreasonable grace. But the story of Ahab tells us that in the end, If you despise the word of God, it will destroy you in the end. Ahab's story ends with his blood being licked out of the chariot floor by the dogs. God's grace is totally unreasonable, but it's not inexhaustible. And if now there is someone here or someone online who knows that this is the way they've treated God, who knows that that they know a lot about God, but they don't really know the Lord Jesus. They don't know Christ and Him crucified. Well, then the reality is God is a God who will deal with your rebellion and your injustice. He always will. He'll either deal with it by pouring out His wrath and anger on His Son, Jesus, who hangs hangs on the cross and shelters you, or He will pour it out on you. And you will eat the fruit that you have sown. So this is a serious, it's a holy moment. Are you right with God? Do you feel so far away that you could never come close? Well, come close. The Father's arms are wide open. But are you perhaps someone 
presuming on the unreasonable grace of God. Know that there will come a time when that unreasonable grace ends, when the door that is wide open now is fast shut, when the Lord Jesus comes with his angels to judge all those, and each of us will stand before him and give an account. But God's unreasonable grace says to you today, will you not respond? It doesn't have to end like Ahab. It could end like that prodigal son in Jesus' story, coming back restored to the Father in celebration and joy. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. And, and as, we, as we close out this part and we sing to close out our service, I, I want to pause and say, if that is you, and that God is stirring your heart now, you do need to respond. Whether you're physically here or you're online, you need to respond to the God who is speaking to you. So what I'm going to do as the musicians start to, to play is pray a very simple prayer, and I'm going to invite you to join me in it, and it's this, just this. I mean, just, I'm just going to read it to you so know what I'm going to pray before I pray it. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you took what I deserve for my sin, that you gave to me what you deserve your righteousness. Forgive me and fill me with your Holy Spirit now and always. It's just a simple prayer of repentance, but what I'm going to ask is that we would all bow our heads, close our eyes, and if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that you would pray this prayer. And I'm going to warn you, don't pray it lightly, because at the end, I'm going to ask you, if you did pray it, that while our heads are bowed, that you would put your hand up so that I can pray for you while you do, okay? So let's bow our heads now and pray together. And if this is in your heart, then quietly in your heart, just echo these words as you speak to God. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you took what I deserve for my sin. Thank you that you give to me what you deserve, your righteousness. Forgive me and fill me with your Holy Spirit now and always. While our eyes are closed, uh, if you did pray that prayer and you're here physically, you just pop your hand up. I'd just love to pray for you. I'm not going to do anything else except pray for you. Oh, bless you. Wow. Wonderful. Anybody else? That's so wonderful. Five or six of you. Anybody else who wants that prayer now as I pray for you? Okay, pop your hand down. That's fine. Father, we thank you that, that you call us again to your unreasonable grace. And I thank you for these men and these women today who have been moved in their spirits. Lord God, they're not too far from you. You've drawn them back in Jesus. Cover them with your blood. Wash them clean. And Father, I pray that this moment would not be just a, a blip. They wouldn't be like Ahab, but they would be like that son in the story that Jesus told, running to his father and receiving from him the wonderful forgiveness and grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.